Well, my uh, kids decided to fill out my notes during worship, so I was curious what they put in for the answers. First, first point, it says, the monsters were shaken by the Judes. Second point, the Judes were shaken by the Josiahs. And the third point, the David was shaken by the Judes. So those are not the right answers, but those are answers. We've been doing a series on New Hope. We're looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus after Easter. So after Easter Day, Jesus continued to appear to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And then at one point, Jesus ascended into heaven. And some of us may say, why would that be necessary? Uh, But it was necessary for the disciples because as long as Jesus kept appearing and disappearing, they could just assume that he would keep doing that indefinitely. So they would keep sitting at an extra place for Jesus at the table. You know, maybe he's going to appear today. But when Jesus ascended physically, he went up and it was clear, like, okay, that's it. No more appearances until Jesus returns the final time. And so after that, our series continued, though, and now we're looking at how the disciples followed Jesus' commission, his great commandment to them, his great commission to them. He said, right before he left, he said, guys, I want you guys to go out and make disciples of everybody, all ethnic groups, wherever God takes you to go, to the very ends of the earth, make disciples of me, of all ethnic groups. And he said, I know you guys are weak, you're not that bright, so just wait a little bit and you're going to get the Holy Spirit. And so they did. They prayed, they, they waited in Jerusalem during, and during the, the festival of Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit in a very dramatic way, the, the infilling of the Holy Spirit in a very dramatic way. And Christianity grew from, at that point, there was about 120 people in Jerusalem, and it grew to about 3,000 people. And then last week, Dean talked about how they went to the temple one day to pray, and they saw a lame guy there, and they prayed for him, and he was healed. And he went into the temple, it says, leaping and praising God. He's so excited. And so today, we're going to pick up right after that. What happens next after this healing? So the authorities at the beginning of chapter 4 in Acts are not, it says they're greatly disturbed. And that's a little bit of an understatement in English. They're very upset in Greek. It's, they're very, very upset that, uh, that, that everybody is flocking to this guy. Now what probably happened, when you read it, the actual miracle, Peter prays for this guy. He's on his way into the temple for the afternoon prayer meeting. Every afternoon they would have a prayer time in the temple. So he prays for this guy, and the guy gets up and goes with him into the temple. Now that's a big deal because lame people are not allowed in the temple. He's never been allowed to go in the temple to worship God. He's always had to sit there at the outer gate. Not just to and so obviously it's humiliating to have to beg. But even more than that, as a devout Jew, as somebody who who truly believes in God, to not be able to go into the temple is humiliating. It's sad. And so for him, it says he goes in leaping and he's shouting and he's, he's praising God. And so naturally that spreads quickly. And by the time they come out again after their prayer meeting, people have gathered. It's a huge thing. And Peter begins to share the gospel with them. And it says that the, the Christianity then grows that day to 5,000 people. More people continue to believe. And so the authorities are upset by this. They have the disciples, John and Peter, they have them arrested and thrown in jail, but it's later in the day, and so they have them in jail overnight. And so the next day, then they have a trial, 
And that's where we're going to pick up today. They Basically, they're asking, what are you guys doing? What authority do you have to do this to cause this commotion? And Peter's going to respond in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, Jesus, is the stone that you builders rejected, which has now become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of John and Peter and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So a couple things here. Obviously, the very famous verse, salvation is found in no one else. And that word salvation is interesting. It's the word, the Greek word sozo. It means to, to heal, to make whole. And in context, obviously, Peter's just referred to this lame man. He was made whole. He was physically healed. And Peter's saying, that's only available through Jesus, but... In the context of his message and of the whole New Testament, we see that sozo means more than just physical healing. It means spiritual healing as well. Being reconciled to God, being reconnected to God. Probably Peter remembers when Jesus said that no one comes to the Father except through me. That's how we're spiritually healed. And so he says this to everybody. And they take note and they say, man, these guys are unschooled, ordinary guys. That doesn't mean that they're illiterate. It doesn't mean that they had no, no education at all. Most Jewish boys went to school at least, at least through eight years old, sometimes through ten, sometimes even more if they showed potential. So all Jewish boys would be, at least be literate because they need to know how to read the scriptures. That was really important. So these guys, they're literate. They have basic education. But the point here is they have no advanced theological training. They've never been to seminary. They probably, they don't have the, even the equivalent of a college degree. They're, they're just ordinary guys. They have no training in public speaking. There's blue-collar guys, laymen, and these priestly you know, leaders, these guys with the equivalent of a PhD in theology, are taken back. And they say, wow, these guys have confidence. They speak boldly. They know what they're doing. And it says they take note that these guys have been with Jesus. And what that probably means is they didn't know initially that these guys were the original disciples of Jesus. They know that they believe in him, but as they listen to them, they're like, man, these guys have the same confidence and the same understanding and the same speaking ability that we saw in Jesus. And we hated it in Jesus and we hate it in them too. And they take note, these guys have been with Jesus. They've been discipled by Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle. And we cannot deny it. 
But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So there's an outstanding miracle has happened. It's undeniable. It's not like this guy, you know, had a headache and Peter's like, you know, get better. And he's like, hey, my head feels like, you know, a little bit better. And they're like, oh, great, it's a miracle. That's not what happened. This is an outstanding, undeniable miracle. And the leaders realize if this message spreads among the people, it's going to undermine their power because they're the ones who killed Jesus. So that doesn't look real good when you killed the guy who's, whose power is healing people. And I've always wondered, what are the Jewish leaders thinking, right? What were they thinking when they killed Jesus? And then after, after that, when the movement continued to spread and people are getting healed, what are they thinking? And we see a couple places in Scripture where you kind of get a glimpse or where they accused Jesus of working with the devil or doing tricks. And so what I imagine is they thought either this is a trick or this is demonic or perhaps it's of God. And we do see that later where one of them says, you know what, this might be God. We might be fighting against God. But what's interesting is that regardless of that, they are unwilling to change their beliefs, their worldview. They like their lifestyle. They make a lot of money. The the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, not all the Jewish leaders, but the Sanhedrin, the top dogs, the top priestly class, the high priest and their family, they make a lot of money from the temple and from the system that they have going on. And so they are unwilling to change their beliefs because their beliefs justify their lifestyle. And there's a lot of people like that. None of us, and, and the reality is none of us are impartial towards the evidence in life. No one here is completely, purely objective. That is a myth. And you see it a lot out in the media, but nobody's objective. The confirmation bias cuts both ways. People love to accuse Christians of having this confirmation bias. We want to have our beliefs confirmed. And I say, yeah, and so do you. It cuts both ways. We all want our beliefs to be confirmed. Absolutely. I was reminded of this the other day. I was reading a guy who was critiquing Craig Keener's book. Craig Keener just wrote a huge two-volume book on miracles. The best uh, attested work on miracles that I've ever seen. And I was reading this guy's critique. And he's, not, he's, he's a skeptic. He's not a believer. And so I was curious, how is he going to respond to, to these documented, very well-documented cases? And so he, he didn't really offer a great response. He offered a couple, though. He said, okay, this one instance where somebody was healed in Africa, the minister who healed him, this skeptic did some research, and found that this minister actually had some what we would call heterodox beliefs. He wasn't a heretic, but he had some beliefs that are a little bit funky. And so that this guy said, well, it couldn't be of God because he had some kind of funky beliefs. And then in another case, he said, this person was raised from the dead, and it's very well documented. And the skeptic said, well, it could have been that he was in a very deep coma where he lacked visible breathing and a detectable pulse. And so he just happened, coincidentally, to come, you know, to awaken as people were praying for him. Well, maybe, right? But it's clear that he has a confirmation bias. We all do. And so the disciples respond to this, and they say, well, what do you guys think? You're the religious leaders. You're the experts. Should we try to please God or try to please you? And they say, besides, our experience compels us to preach. We can't help sharing what we've seen and heard. 
And that's really the essence of sharing about Jesus, of doing evangelism. I just can't help sharing about what I've seen and heard. That's, that's what it boils down to. We can talk about the four spiritual laws or apologetics or whatever other method you like to use, friendship evangelism. You have them over to your house and then you have them over a second time and maybe you mention the word Jesus and then you have them with, you can do whatever you want. It's fine to have a system maybe. But evangelism comes down to the fact that we talk about what we're passionate about, what we believe in, what we're excited about. We can't help it. You're going to talk about what you love. If you're not very motivated to share about Jesus, it might be because you're not very excited about him. You don't really believe in him very strongly. You're not very passionate about him. Now, I'm not trying to guilt you into doing evangelism and saying, okay, prove to me that you love Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to motivate you to spend more quality time with Jesus. The answer to to a lack of enthusiasm for evangelism is to spend more time with Jesus. Make him a priority in your time. And as he becomes more and more important to you, he will become a priority in your conversations. If you're passionate about him, it will come out. People here, you guys know what I enjoy. I like football. I like things like that. It comes out. I can't help it. Hopefully that's true for Jesus as well. That he just comes out. Keep going. Verse 21. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So I got a little newsflash for those of you who are over 40. You're old. That's what the Bible says, so you can't, can't deny it. It's what the Jews believed. Now, plenty of people back then, just as today, plenty of people lived long lives. Uh, the Apostle John lived into his 90s. Josephus, a very famous Jewish historian, lived to be in his 90s. So people lived long lives, some of them. But Jews knew they weren't so PC and they didn't have all these, you know, you know I don't know, tai, you know, whatever, tai chi, whatever, keep yourself healthy. They didn't have all that. Jews recognized that once you're over 40, you are declining You're going down the hill. Some of us are going faster, some of us are going slower, but we're all going down once you're over 40. Sorry. There's no reversing it. Train doesn't go back up the hill the other way. And so the Jews assumed, and I think we kind of do this too, but the Jews assumed that if God was going to heal somebody, he would heal somebody young. Somebody who had a lot of years and energy left to serve him, to give to the kingdom. I mean, why would God heal an old person who's just going to keep falling apart, right? God heals something, and then they fall down and break their hip the next day. Like, what's the point? Why worry about the old people? That's, that was kind of the view. You're over 40, man. It's too late. And that's part of why people are so amazed here. Obviously, this is an, an undeniable miracle. That's amazing in itself. But it's also amazing that God would heal an old beggar. Somebody who has nothing physically or financially to offer God. This guy's not going to go on and do a a career of of incredible ministry since he's over 40. We don't know how old. He could be in his 50s or 60s. He may die like tomorrow. He's old. But God loves him still. God cares about him still. He has nothing to offer, and yet God heals him. Now, God doesn't heal all of us. 
But God is showing, someday he is going to heal all of us in the new age when Jesus returns. And God is showing through this miracle, yes, he is, people to say, oh yeah, he's authenticating Peter and John, showing their apostles. Yes, he is doing that. He's proving their message. He's also showing that he loves people who have nothing to offer him. They're old, they're poor. God doesn't care. He still heals this guy. It's incredible. And that's a big reason why these leaders are so motivated to want to squash this movement, to, to nip it in the bud. Because people are excited. They're paying attention. And so they make threats to the, to the disciples. And that begins the first persecution of the church. It is an undeniable historical fact that early Christians met ostracization, jail, torture, and death with incredible courage. Undeniable. I say that because there are a lot of facts out there on the internet that are not facts. They're theories. Some of them are good theories, but there's a lot of facts that aren't facts. But this is an undeniable fact. Christians were ostracized and jailed and tortured and martyred, and they met it with incredible courage. How? How could they do that? Especially in a culture where family and community are everything. And we don't maybe feel that as much in our culture because we're more individualistic here in the West. But in that culture, they don't have Medi-Cal. They don't have Social Security. It's your family and friends who will take care of you as you age. Family and friends are everything. Loyalty to your family comes before all other loyalties in this culture. And yet, Christians were willing to cut ties with their families because of their loyalty to Jesus. How? Why? Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer and said to God, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. We'll stop there. First point in your notes. It's not monsters were shaken by Jude's. It is the disciples were shaken by the world. The disciples were shaken by the world. I'll explain that. The disciples took these threats seriously. Okay, they didn't brush them off. They weren't like, oh yeah, yeah, right. You guys wouldn't do anything to us. That's not what they thought. They knew these authorities. They knew that these authorities had the power to take away their freedom, their income, their material goods, their possessions, their loved ones, and even their lives. In this culture, you could be thrown in jail, your material possessions could be sold, and your loved ones could be sold into slavery. That was a real possibility. Humanly, the disciples were powerless against these guys. They had no political clout. They have no money for bribes. They have no physical way to protect themselves. They have no Roman citizenship to appeal to. In in the Greco-Roman world, the only way that you had any rights is if you're a Roman citizen. That's why Paul is constantly saying, uh, before you whip me, just know that I'm a Roman citizen. And the people are like, whoa, okay. But the other disciples, they don't have this. They don't have Roman citizenship to appeal to. The only human way to protect themselves is to abandon the mission, 
stop talking about Jesus. That's the only way that they'll be safe. Plus, they knew that God sometimes allows his people to suffer at the hands of those who fight against him. He doesn't always rescue. For every Daniel, there are many others who are not rescued from the lions. And the, the example they give right here, the obvious one, is Jesus. Jesus, under Herod and Pilate, was crucified. He was not rescued. And they, they realized this, and they realized that the same fate could very well happen to them. But they also recognized that ultimately, God is in control. That those who crucified Jesus played right into God's plan. And that all of God's enemies are only doing what God knew ahead of time that they would do and already planned on them doing. And so with that in mind, they only pray for two things. They only ask for two things. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They ask for boldness and miracles to confirm their message. Nothing else. They don't ask for the preservation of their property, for the protection of their loved ones, for their freedom, for their comfort, for their lives, which are all the standard prayers of, of most Americans. The disciples' biggest fear was not the loss of those things. It was the possibility that they would be too timid to obey Jesus. That they would turn away from him in fear and they would value their comfort and their safety above him. That was their greatest concern. That's what they're praying about here. They feel these threats. They're taking them seriously. They're afraid and they're saying, Jesus, we are We're afraid that we're not going to be bold. We don't feel bold right now. Give us some boldness, Lord. It's not wrong to pray for the protection of your property, for the protection of your loved ones, for your comfort, for your life. I pray for those things. I pray all the time. Every night I pray for my boys. I pray for my family. I do pray for those things. I don't think that's wrong. But if that is your primary prayer, If that's the thing that you pray for the most, then that is your primary mission in life. The preservation of your family, your property, your life. The protection of those things. And if that's the case, you probably won't experience what happened to the disciples in verse 31. It says, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The second point in your notes is that the disciples were shaken by the Lord. The disciples were shaken by the Lord. It says the place where they were staying was shaken. God is manifesting his presence. Now what does that mean? That's a, that's a common Christian term that you might hear. God is present everywhere. In the sense that God knows all things and he, he has the ability to act at any given points in the physical world. So in that sense, he's present everywhere. But God can display his presence, his power, in very tangible ways at certain times and places. So think of Mount Sinai when God, the thunder and the lightning and the, the earthquake, that's God manifesting, showing his presence very tangibly. And that's what God is doing here. He shakes the building, and it says they are filled with 
the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. That is the same phrase, exact same phrase, that's used in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. It says they're filled with the Spirit. And it's used at the beginning of our passage today. I don't know if you noticed it. Verse 8 says Peter was filled with the Spirit. And he spoke to the Sanhedrin boldly. Now the point of that, what I'm, what I'm trying to draw your attention to, is that there are multiple infillings of the Holy Spirit for our mission to serve Jesus, to do the Great Commission. It's not a one-time thing. And this is where Pentecostals and Charismatics often get mistaken. It's not a one-time thing. Paul says that all Christians are baptized into the Spirit at conversion. We're all baptized into the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, we all have the baptism of the Spirit. We're all part of Jesus. And, and Again, we, use these, we throw around these terms we don't always understand. Baptism of the Spirit is just the idea that as a Christian now, the Holy Spirit is working in you and through you. And the very fact that you're a Christian shows that the Holy Spirit's working in you because you wouldn't be a Christian if the Holy Spirit hadn't drawn you to God. So we're all baptized in the Spirit in the sense that we all have the Holy Spirit working in us if we are believers in Jesus. But Paul also says, be filled with the Spirit. And it's a, the verb there is a continuous continually, daily, be filled with the Spirit. Every day. So you have the Holy Spirit working in you, but you can quench that. You cannot pay attention to that. And so Paul says, every day, allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. And some days, it's going to be a greater infilling than others. It's not a one-time thing. And so if you come up to me and you're like, man, I, yeah, I remember being filled with the Spirit back at a Campus Crusade rally in 1978, and it was awesome. I'm like, that's great, but I hope you're being filled with the Spirit today in 2018. Because we need to be filled with the Spirit continually. So, the disciples were shaken by the world. Then, the disciples were shaken by the Lord. The third point, the world was shaken by the disciples. We'll read 31 again here. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the, disciples, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So the first thing is they spoke the word boldly. They preached boldly. There's a verse later in Acts where Paul, Paul's on his mission trip, and he goes to the city in Greece. And when he gets there, he begins preaching, and some of, the, some of the people in the city recognize him because they've heard about this guy. And they go to the governor, and they say, hey, this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. And the idea is we've got to stop them. They're going to cause a lot of trouble. And I think, man, I wish people would say that about me, right? I wish if I was going to Kauai, there was riots, and people were like, he's already turned torrents upside down. Don't let him come here. That's not going to happen. I wish. I think that's what we could aspire to. They preached boldly. They turned their society upside down. And I turned my papers upside down. Clement is um, 
a cool guy. Most of us evangelicals haven't heard of him, but Clement was one of the early pastors. He was basically a senior pastor at the church in Rome. And he was the senior pastor there about 90s, in the 90s AD. And he was discipled by Peter, and he knew Paul, and he knew some of the other apostles. And he wrote a letter to the Corinthians, and it's, uh, it's called First Clement. And it's, it's a cool read if you ever read it. It has some cool stuff in there. And at one point he says that the apostles lived fearlessly and despised death. They despised it. I, I like that, that phrase. It's not just that they were like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet death with courage. They, they, look, they looked on death with contempt. What can, you, what can you do to me? You can kill me? Is that all? It's like that, that was their attitude. That's what enabled them to be fearless. It's like, well, you kill me, I'll just go live with Jesus. But if you don't kill me, I'm going to keep doing ministry here. And they displayed supernatural unity and generosity. One of the bad things um, about our English translations, and it's not really a bad thing, Sometimes it's helpful, but we have these chapter or these uh, section headers. And so your Bible might have a section header right after verse 31. It, mine says, the believers share their possessions. And the trouble with that, though, is that we think, okay, one section has ended and now there's a new section. But the original, the original uh, text did not have those chapter headers or those section headers. And so clearly Luke is still talking about the effect that being filled with the Holy Spirit had on the believers. It gave them boldness, but it also gave them unity and generosity. And so we don't want to downplay those things and say, well, it's boldness. Well, yeah, it is boldness, but our unity, our supernatural unity and our supernatural generosity are also an incredible witness to the world. Um, One of the things that the early pagans used to say, and it's recorded, is they would talk about Christians and they would say, see how they love. It was kind of like a, it wasn't just like, oh, that's wonderful. It was like, a, like, that's weird. See how they love each other. See how they sacrificially serve each other and give to each other. It's odd. It's strange. Why would you do that? And so that also, not, not only was the boldness of their preaching what got people's attention, it was the incredible supernatural nature of their love, of their generosity, of their unity. May we have that as well. Let's pray.